we've been working a lot on this space, so I don't want to buckle my legs and fall up here, so I'm going to sit for a little bit. Hope that's okay. But like I was saying, we're, we are featuring this song, Nothing But the Blood. Now, what, what I love is we're seeing a different version of this old hymn, this hymn that goes back uh, years and years and years. And I remember growing up in church, my mom sang on the worship team. So this is a song that, that I, I vividly remember ever since I was a little kid. And Charles introduced me to this new version of it. I love it because it still has this same core principle in it. There's just this profound message that we find in this song, Nothing But the Blood. It's very simple. We say, nothing but the blood. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's, it's this simple little statement, and yet it carries so much weight. So let me ask you this, because I'm curious. As, as I was kind of exploring this, there's a few words that continue to come up when we talk about the blood of Jesus, uh, him dying on the cross, and, and some words that uh, may just be churchy words that I'm curious if, if you know, if you understand. So how many of you you can raise your hands. It's okay. We can do participation. You can talk back to me. How many of you know uh, or have heard of the word atonement? All right, most of you. Now, the real question is, how many of you feel like you can share and explain that to someone who doesn't know that? See, I, I, one of the things that I, I've come to notice, and this is something that I had to work through myself, we have a lot of church words that we throw around a lot atonement, baptism, sanctification, purification. We throw around these big words, and sometimes we don't really take a moment and say, here, this is what this means. This is the implication here. When we talk about, when we sing this song, we say nothing but the blood. There's this emphasis, and the reason why they emphasize the idea of blood, and not just the whole, I mean, there, there's implication within the whole death and resurrection, but there is a really profound meaning within the blood that we're going to get to. So, to kick us off, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, we've had this new resource that we've been using. It's called Right Now Media. And so if you haven't gotten the email access link and gone on and uh, browsed through there, go ahead and send us a message or go on over to our website so you can get access to that. There's so many just cool opportunities of Bible studies, devotions, things for your kids, and just ways in which you can learn on there. And so actually, I want to feature that today because they're going to explain it a lot better than I can. So we're going to take a moment. I actually got the audio to work this time. I didn't work during the first uh, gathering, so got that corrected. So Richard, if you will, go ahead and play this. Basically what you're going to see here is they're going to explain what sacrifice and atonement good, is. For people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Now, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, 
early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper. 
which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Awesome. I'm glad that video worked this time so I don't have to explain all that. But listen, the, the reason why I wanted to show that and share some of that is because what we begin to see when we talk about the blood of Jesus. We talk about his sacrifice, what he did on the cross, but there's this rich backstory that leads up to it throughout the Old Testament. We begin to see the need in it when we see God created mankind, and God wasn't forced to create mankind. No one twisted his arm, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had this wonderful fellowship, community, and relationship. It was overflowing of love and community, and out of that they created mankind because they wanted to see that family grow and expand. And so God creates mankind, and yet, uh, let's just say we mess up a little bit, and we, we sin. And it begins to bring about this separation between man and God, between God and those he created to be in community with him. Sin brings about this separation from that. And what we, you, you could have easily seen is God said, all right, well, you guys are off on your own. Have fun trying to figure stuff out on your own. Could have left us to our own thing. And yet God continued to relentlessly pursue us. And we see this as he enters into uh, these different covenantal relationships. And we see one of the most profound ones in Abraham. And I see you smiling, Peggy. I know you like this. Uh, when we talk about a covenantal relationship, what it is is two people entering into agreement with each other. And God goes to Abraham and says, I will be your God. You be my people. His, this is how we can interact and care and be together in relationship, even though it's not perfect. It's not us walking together like it was in the garden. And yet God is saying, I'm going to try and make a way for you. Amen. The beautiful thing is God is faithful and keeps his side. The thing that we have to deal with is we can't keep ours whatsoever. Right, let's just be honest. We mess it up constantly, and that's what we see throughout the whole Old Testament. You continually see God's family, Israel, just continue to mess up and mess up and mess up and mess up. Did I say mess up because they mess up again? And we see this family grow. And the cool thing is, is even in their faults, even in their sin, you begin to see some of what God promised in that covenantal relationship come to fruition. When you, when you see the nation of Israel begin to expand, and expand so much that when they get to, get to Egypt and they're under Pharaoh, what you begin to see, if, you, if you're kind of reading between the lines, it says, it says the nation of Israel was fruitful and multiplying. Their nation was becoming so large. And that's why Pharaoh was becoming worried and anxious. He is like, I, I don't know what's going on with these people. I don't know why they continue to expand and grow in the, which, the way they do. I, like, I'm putting more work on them. I'm making it tougher for them. And yet, for some reason, they continue to grow because God was faithful to them. Amen. God gets them out of Egypt and helps them out, and you find them in the wilderness. And one of the things that kind of cracks me up kind of in my seat and probably our seat is we look at Israel and we say, Israel, you're in the wilderness. You just got saved. God's providing food. He's doing all this stuff. He's showing up in a pillar of fire and smoke. And yet you still question whether you should go back to Egypt and if that's a better life for you. And so God 
hears some of this grumbling, hears some of this negativity going on in his family, and he begins to speak to them. He comes out with Ten Commandments. He comes out for a way in which he can be present in their community. And so this is where we get to uh, the book that I want us to focus on today, probably everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. <laughs> I hear a lot of grumbling for those who know what that book is. For those of you who um, maybe you're new to faith and maybe haven't explored this book, uh, let's just say when I was a kid, we had a running joke for this book. When I was in elementary and middle school and we would be at camp and it was time for quiet time where you would go off and read your Bible, kind of do your own thing, we would all have the kind of the running joke of who could read the furthest in Leviticus without falling asleep because it, it's a lot of rules and regulations and if you don't know kind of what you're reading and what you're getting into, it's a, it's a tough one to chew on if I'm going to be honest. But there's this really profound thing that we notice in this where we get through some of the rituals that, uh, and sacrifices that God talks about in there, of rituals of thanksgiving, of showing that how thankful we are to God, and even rituals of saying, God, I'm sorry, forgive me for this. We see the priesthood that develops where the Levites are allowed to go. Basically, you have the tabernacle that gets constructed, and there's this veil that blocks it from the community. The tabernacle is in the dead center of Israel among the nation. God is present with his people, and yet there still has to be a level of separation because God can't be in the presence of sin. Otherwise, you'll see destruction amongst those who are sinful. And so what he does is he constructs this tabernacle where he's in the dead center of that, and they have these Levites. They have these priesthood who would go and represent the people, go behind the veil to go on behalf of God to speak for us. It'd be very similar to if Jared was to walk back behind this curtain into the presence of God on all of our behalf, and we go, all right, thanks, Jared. Thanks for, thanks for talking to God, asking him to forgive us and thanking him for what he's done for us. And then we see a third portion in, in Leviticus that talks about this purification, clean and unclean. What makes you spiritually clean? What makes you spiritually unclean? And for a lot of us this year that have focused on hand washing and talking about that, let's be real, it's tough to freaking keep, keep our hands clean. Then you touch a table, you touch your chair, you touch your shoes, anything. Uh, my wife uh, very much has taught me about a lot of things in which uh, makes your hands clean and why you should always have hand sanitizer. But that, that's what they begin to see in Leviticus is, is that it's, it's tough for us to continually stay spiritually clean because there's so many things that even go unnoticed. Things we don't even think about, don't even know in our day of where we sin, we, we do something that makes us not be able to be in the presence of God and we get this beautiful portion in, in Leviticus where we get this day of atonement where it talks about. And basically what happens is once a year, the whole nation is able to come together around this one sacred holiday where they do this. They take two goats, they take the first one and they sacrifice it. They kill it, they take the blood and pour its blood over the altar. The blood is what symbolizes the life, the life of something. And so it's a life being poured out in replace of our life, which should be paid. And then they take the second goat and they lay their hands on it and they cast upon it all the sins of the nation. They make it its scapegoat, and they send it out into the wilderness. And it's between these two that they get themselves to be clean and forgiven for their sins, and they cast off all their sins out into the wilderness through these two goats. And again, time and time again, this is what the nation of Israel and God's people has to do. And what it was saying in the video is that over time, as they continue to do this, it just kind of becomes this mundane routine thing that they do that doesn't necessarily have the full weight and meaning that's behind it. I mean, you do something so many times that sometimes you, you kind of forget the significance 
the importance behind it. I mean, think about it. We, we do communion each week. And sometimes we can kind of just go through the motions and do it and not really sit there and chew on the impact, the importance behind it of why we genuinely do this every time. And so they begin doing this, and uh, you can just continue to see this cycle where they just continue to sin, and there's this separation that is still present. And the beautiful thing about what we talk about on the cross is Jesus became that day of atonement. He became, became the two goats. He allowed his blood to be poured out on the altar his life to be released for us. And he took upon all the sins of the world. He genuinely became the scapegoat for all people, for all of our sins, all the sins of our past, of the sins to come, can be bare on the cross. We have a God who so relentlessly loves us that even when we continue to run away from him, sometimes he pursues us. Even in our brokenness and weakness, God shows up and says, hey, I've made a way for you to be accepted, to be loved, to be invited and welcomed into the family. And the thing that we have to begin to wrestle with as Christians is genuinely, do I believe that? Do I, have, have I accepted that gift, that love that God has trying to show me, that gift that he's trying to do on the cross? Who can wash away my sins? I can't do it. You can't do it. You can't bear the weight of what you are dealing with, but Jesus has done that for you. And he invites you into that. Gracie knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? And it's in this, that this love, this transformation that begins to change in our heart allows us to go out to each and every one. As we see in the song when it talks about everyone can be redeemed and restored. Everyone. Not just me. Not just Charles and Gracie, not just my wife back there, but everyone, all of us in this room, all of those in our community, Jesus died for them to bring them restoration, to bring them freedom, to bring them into the family. And so the message that we get to share with our community, with those around us, when we begin to embrace this truth, it's not just that God died for me, that God died for them. The people that we, sometimes the people that we even avoid, the people that we dislike, the people that we leave on red in the text message, the people that we uh, look to, and there's just this level of frustration. Maybe there's this anger that comes out when you think about somebody, when you see some uh, icon pop up on the TV, whatever feelings you have about some of the political figures in our country, God died for them. God loves them. Whether you're a Trump person, whether you're a Biden person, whether you're a LeBron James or someone else, whoever brings about this, this dislike, this annoyance in your heart, it, it, it's not an easy thing to begin to wrestle with it. Yeah, God, God died for them, but why, why is it in my heart that I have this, this distrust, this dislike, this, I, I, I don't want to allow that to be shared with that person. There, there's, sometimes this happens in our heart. It's because sin is so easily perpetuated in our culture and in our community that it's like, all right, after three times, um, I'm going to kind of separate myself from that person. I'm going to kind of kick them to the side a little bit. Yeah, you're welcome here, but like uh, we begin to add the caveats in there. We put the little asterisks at the bottom. Just say, do you read the fine prints? Uh, we said you're welcome, but this. We begin to do that. And really what we begin to see with the transformation of the blood of Jesus' life being poured out is that life is granted and given to us and to those who we think are way too far gone. Sometimes we, we begin to imagine ourselves and we think, all right, I'm, I'm pretty good where I'm at. 
you know, I, maybe I've grown up in church, or, you know, I, I got my basics down. I'm doing good enough. I'm just above average. Uh, the example I like to use is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not batting, you know, all the way at the bottom, but I'm like six. I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad. I, I hit a couple here and there, but we, we begin to use that terminology when we think about our faith sometimes. I'm not that bad. I, I, I could be worse, and we get complacent. And we get comfortable where we are, and we just kind of continue in this same cycle. But when we talk about progress over perfection, it doesn't just mean that you're complacent and content and saying, yeah, I'm never going to be perfect, so I'm just going to kind of coast where I'm at. No, when we talk about progress over perfection, it means that we are genuinely making progress and allowing God to transform our heart with this message that we are loved, that we have hope, that we have a family that tells us that we are accepted and that we belong there's some of us who, who maybe out there, you're wrestling with this concept of Jesus dying for me because you're like, man, I'm too far gone. Maybe I, how can God forgive me and love me? How can I be a part of something like this? I've been told all my life that, wow, what, what you've done, what you've said, how you've acted, you, you, no, you, you can't be forgiven. Some people have been told that in their life, and man, that breaks my heart. Because what we see in Jesus is that no one is too far gone. No one is too far away from him to continue to pursue him. As Jesus said, he will leave the 99 and go after the one, the one who is the furthest away that you can imagine, the person that even you have this, this just visceral just like annoyance or maybe hatred that comes out sometimes. Yeah, God loves them, and God wants them to be a part of the family. And if we're going to be a church that says we're everyday people committed to expanding God's family, it means that at the table there's always a seat open for someone. There's a seat open for that person that we don't like, that we disagree with, but we're able to come together in the midst of our disagreements and our different views, our different cultures, our different perspectives, and say, God, you, you work in this family. You allow us to be together. You tell us that family isn't just us agreeing on everything, but that we're able to come to this table and love the way in which you have loved us. And for me, that's... When I hear this song, Nothing But the Blood, this is just the, the heart of this song in which I get out of that is that genuinely the blood has poured out not just for us in this room, but for our community. And so the way in which we act, we react to certain things, the way in which we speak and interact with our community is going to convey what we believe about Jesus. If we go out into our community and, you know, I, I, I hold myself to a certain standard, I, I do pretty good, but, but then someone cuts me off in the road and, oh, finger is up, or my barista gets me the wrong drink, and I'm like, oh, nope, get me the right drink. What, is, what does that begin to convey when we say, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, but, hey, don't mess up here? I, I mean, genuinely, like, it happens every now and then. We have these moments where we're just kind of running on empty. We're frustrated. We're annoyed. We're, we're just kind of at our wits end. And we haven't allowed ourselves to be full, overflowing fullness from the Holy Spirit that allows us in those moments where we're frustrated, we're just done, to be able to still speak a word of love and acceptance and grace into those moments. And it's when we begin to do that that we begin to show our community that, hey, when we say everyone is welcome, Jesus died for all people and everyone is welcome in the family that Jesus loves you accepts you and you belong you are not alone you are not forgotten when we convey that we convey it through the Holy Spirit that is alive and present that is working in each and every one